Good morning, Grace. Oh, man, it is good to be with you today. Uh, I'm so glad that we can gather together, worship the Lord, sit under the word. Thank you for being here. Um, as Kenny mentioned, uh, as Maddie read, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today. So uh, have your Bibles open there if you don't already. And I'm going to start our time by uh, playing Jeopardy real quick. So uh, question, what boat set sail in 1620 with about 102 passengers and about 30 crew members departing from England? Mayflower. There you go. Well done, our history buffs. So what was that? What is the Mayflower? There you go. The people are good at Jeopardy. There we go. <laughs> uh, the Mayflower set sail 1620. 102 passengers, about 30 crew members, and landed November 21st uh, in right outside of Cape Cod, or uh, right outside of uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. That was about 400 years and five months ago. And as some of you may be aware, those days, those early days, were rough. Uh, they say about 45 uh, of the original uh, passengers on the Mayflower died in that first winter. The, the, the winter was just too brutal. They, they weren't sheltered from the elements. Uh, they got too cold and, and they died. Things like scurvy and dysentery ravaged these people. But uh, pretty soon, uh, things started to change, fortunes changed. By 1625, uh, things had changed so much to the point where uh, these, these settlers were able to, to build a fort on Manhattan Island, uh, where we now know New York City to be. Uh, by 1640, the first book was printed in the United States, and it was a book of Psalms. Uh, not too much longer after that, if we were to fast forward uh, 1776, Declaration of Independence. Uh, 1970, or 1777, just a year later, George Washington uh, was able to chair the first Constitutional Congress in Philadelphia. Construction on the U.S. Capitol in D.C. Uh, began uh, in, in 1793. President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation about a lifetime later, 70 years later. Fast forward even further, 1917, the national highway system was dreamed up and began to be implemented in the United States. All the while, World War I was raging where horses were a primary means of transportation. About 10 years later, penicillin was invented and changed modern medicine. You could fast forward exactly 400 years from the day that the Mayflower landed, my son Henry was born. I can keep going in reflecting on all that has happened since the Mayflower landed off of Cape Cod 400 years and some five months ago. Think about all of the history that's occurred in our nation. And then think about the world at large. What's been going on in our world over that course of time? Now, why am I saying all of this? I think it's important for us to get a sense 
of what 400 years looks like. Why? Well, because now, as we approach the book of Luke, we recognize that for roughly 400 years, the Lord has been silent. For roughly 400 years, God has not spoken. And so about 400 years-ish back, the prophet Malachi said these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, and he continues on. And that's the end of the Old Testament. Silence. 400 years, God does not speak. The fire does not burn. And yet the people of God, they continue. They continue to exist. And they continue to hope. And they, they seek to persevere, uh, resting on God's promises. And some falter. And they, and they don't hope. And they don't persevere. But some do. And they keep hoping. And they keep hoping that the Lord will be faithful. And so they wait. But then after 400 years, in a moment, everything changes. Everything changes. And that is what we're going to be considering today in Luke. And that's what we're going to be considering for the next several weeks. That after 400 long years of waiting and waiting and waiting, in the blink of an eye, it all changes. And everything speeds up rapidly. And so... That's the big idea today. Everything is changing. God is going to do something remarkable. And we see the beginning of that in our passage today. So three points. Uh, and, and really, you could just look at the front of your bulletin to see the three points that we're going to be considering today. Uh, and, and that's not me trying to, to put a, a square peg in a round hole where this passage is concerned. This is just the book of Luke. And so, uh, point one, we've received good news that changes everything. Good news that changes everything. Point two, we've received good news that brings unspeakable, remarkable joy. And then finally, we've received good news of great joy for all people that's received by faith. So let me pray and we'll dive into unpacking this passage, Luke 1, 5 through 25. Father, we thank you for the, for the opportunity to gather together today to, to sit under your word and to worship our King and Lord and Savior, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would be pleased with our worship, and I pray that by your spirit you would speak to us today. Cause your word to land on our hearts. And so, Father, we offer you ourselves, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the first thing we want to see from Luke 1 this morning is that we've received good news that changes everything. Good news that changes everything. Luke wants... Theophilus to have certainty about the things that has been taught. And so he takes him back to the very beginning of the stories. In the days of Herod, Luke's setting a historical stage. It's been 400 years, a long time since God spoke. And then we're transported to the temple. That's the setting of all of our action today, the temple in Jerusalem. And at the temple, an offering was made by a priest twice a day. And Zechariah was chosen by Lot to be that priest to receive the honor of making the daily 
probably evening sacrifice. And so Zechariah was going to participate in what's called the perpetual offering. So again, this is a morning and evening offering where the people would gather and they would pray as the priest would go into the temple and and, and do certain ceremonial um, uh, rites and then ultimately offer incense. And the people would pray, God of mercy, come into your sanctuary and fill us again. And the priest would go into that holy place in the temple and he would offer these incense. And, and this was to be a sweet smell on behalf of the people to God saying, we need you. And so outside, the people of God would pray and they'd pray this prayer, God of mercy, come into your sanctuary. And inside, the priest would represent and visualize these prayers by offering these incense to the Lord. And so literal prayers made outside, symbolic prayers made inside. And what happens? In an instance, in an instance, God acts. God acts. Acts. Now, as an aside, that is incredibly instructive for us. What happens when the people of God gather together in a moment of corporate solemn prayer? God appears and he does something remarkable. I think we should be instructed by that, no doubt. But what, what happens? An angel appears. Gabriel, the angel, appears. He shows up. And, and if we were to stop here, if this is all we, if this is all we knew then we would know that something really significant is happening in this passage. Do you know that the word angel shows up more in the New Testament than words like love and sin? I didn't know that until this week. R.C. Sproul pointed that out, and I found that remarkably interesting. It's an interesting tidbit, but it points to an important fact. And that is that angels play an important role in the New Testament, and and when angels show up, that is a, a thing where alarms should go off on our head that say something big is happening. Something remarkable is happening. Gabriel's will later, or Gabriel will later show up uh, and, and make a similar sort of announcement that he's gonna make to Zechariah, to Mary. Angels will show up at the birth of Jesus. Angels will, will be referred to when Jesus goes to be tempted in the wilderness. Again, they're referred to at Jesus' crucifixion and they're present at his resurrection. All of these important, significant moments in salvation history, angels are present and explicit. And so what does this angel do? Gabriel, he makes an announcement. He makes an announcement. He tells Zechariah, the priest whom God has chosen by the casting of lots, the priest whose name means God has remembered again, God's promises are being fulfilled. God's promises are being fulfilled. His covenant promises are going to be realized before your eyes. And you, Zechariah, you will have a son. You will have a son and he will be no mere man, but he will be a great man, a man that will bring your wife and you joy and gladness for he will be great in my eyes, a mighty servant of mine. And, and Gabriel goes on and gives some interesting uh, specifics about this son. His name will be John. He won't drink wine. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born in his mother's womb. 
He will go in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn Israel back to God. He will go before another who is greater than he to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So much can be said about these insights that we get into the child that has been announced. But what we're seeing on the nose is a fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, which we read just a little while earlier. The prophet that was long ago foretold, the final Old Testament prophet is being announced. The forerunner to the Messiah is being announced. And in other words, what we're seeing here is is that everything is about to change. We have a a core group leader right now who is... uh, been meticulously working through Chronicles of Narnia and, and, and talking to me a lot about it. So I sort of have C.S. Lewis on the brain right now. And, and so recently I came across uh, a, a blog that, that just has a beautifully written um, um, sort of uh, exposition on a really beautiful phrase in the Chronicles of Narnia. I want to read it for you. Winter envelops Narnia. It is always winter and never Christmas as, as it has been for longer than anyone can remember. The white witch holds all the land with an icy grip. The world is cold and gray and miserable. How long has it been since Narnia had any hope? Rumors begin to spread. There's a feeling in the air Something has changed. It is not a visible change. The world is still as bleak as it has been for ages, yet something is different. Hearts quicken. Souls stir. A presence that has been absent for so long is back. Hope rekindles. It is a faint hope. A hope built on a desperate longing. A hope that is fragile and at risk of blowing away in the icy winds of an accursed winter. Yet the good animals and creatures of Narnia can feel it. They know Aslan is on the move. Aslan, the great lion, the creator and destroyer of worlds and kingdoms. Aslan, who brought the world of Narnia to life with a song. Aslan, whose very voice called the stars into existence. Aslan, who had full knowledge of the deeper magic before the world began. The deeper magic of sacrifice, grace, and redemption. This Aslan is on the move. The good animals know it. The rivers and the trees can feel it. The grass and the rocks quiver in anticipation. Aslan is on the move. It's always winter, but never Christmas. I think that's an apt way to put what Israel was facing in those days. It had been so long, 400 years without a hint 400 years without a whisper. And can you begin to wrap your mind around 400 years? The average lifespan 400 years ago was 39 years. I am four years away from being done if I lived 400 years ago. It might as well be a million years ago if you imagine what life was like in 1621. It's, it's, it's unimaginable what life would be like. And this is a massive amount of time for God not to be present and not to be moving and filling and, and directing his people. 
Imagine existing based on promise for 400 years with no assurance of when that promise would be fulfilled. You'd have to wonder if God had forgotten you. You'd have to wonder if God had changed his mind. You might begin to wonder, was this ever real in the first place? Maybe some of you understand this. Maybe you know what it's like to go through prolonged seasons of waiting. Maybe you know what it's like to to go through prolonged seasons of loneliness. To go through prolonged seasons of expectations that go unmet and unmet and unmet. Deep desires of your heart that are not being fulfilled. Sins that continue and linger and you can't put away. The hope for reconciliation relationships, it just keeps on going with that relationship being broken. Maybe you really, at at an emotional heart level, get what it means to wait. And you know how it can feel like you're being abandoned. Maybe you too feel forgotten by God. But what we see in Luke 1 is no. God has not forgotten. He has not forgotten. God does not change his mind. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is real and he is on the move. At the exact right moment in human history, socially, economically, culturally, religiously, he moved to bring about his redemption, to bring about his salvation to a people where he would gather people to himself. And so in this announcement to Zechariah that this baby would be born and given to him and his mother, God decisively acts and he makes it plain that his plan is in motion, his plan to redeem a people to himself. It changes everything for Israel. A new age has dawned and that means also that everything has changed for us as well. But what could change? What would change? That's a big question. And and the answer to that question is something that we cannot adequately tease out this morning, but we'll seek to tease out over the next several weeks and months even. But we do see some of what is changing here in Luke chapter one. And so what we see is we zoom in on the lives of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth is incredible. And that takes us to our second point. We've received good news that brings unspeakable joy. Good news that brings unspeakable joy. When we think about the story, at the beginning of Luke, it's helpful to think in terms of macro and micro. Macro and micro. There's a macro story. There's this big thing that's happening. God is doing something big and extravagant and marvelous that changes everything for all people. So we've got this big thing that's happening. God is working at that macro level, but he's also very clearly working at a micro level. He's zooming in on individuals and in particular a family and he's clearly at work. And so God's at work at these two levels. There's the wide angle lens and the telephoto lens that he's working in. And so this story, Luke 1, it zooms in on a family, Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
And Zechariah and Elizabeth, they have a problem. Elizabeth, uh, they are without child. Elizabeth is barren. Not only that, but as Zechariah says, he is old and his wife is advanced with age, which I think is a very uh, wise way to, to state the situation by the husband. But the fact is they have no child. They have no child. They desire a child, but it has not happened. Does that sound familiar as you think about the scriptures? That's a theme that we've seen before, right? We've seen that sort of thing in the Bible. It's the story of Abraham and Sarah. It's the story of Rebecca and Jacob. It's the story of Samson's mother. It's the story of Hannah. We've seen barrenness before in the Bible highlighted. It's a devastating spot. It comes with real grief. It comes with a crushing sense of unmet expectations. And when I think of this scenario, I, I think the phrase that, that often comes to mind is, is hope deferred makes the heart sick. It is a tough place to be, to be dealing with, uh, with barrenness, with infertility, with the hope of a child and, and not the realization of a child. And, and I know that some of you know that intimately, what that means. It's a situation worthy of lament. A lot can be said about the emotional toll of this situation that this couple finds themselves in. But that's not the major aspect that's highlighted in this story. Instead, the, the major thing that's highlighted is shame. Shame. In this day and age, in, in Zechariah and, and Elizabeth's world, this was a shameful thing. It, it was a reproachful thing. If you were without child, then in the, the, the minds of the people, it probably meant that you were so big of a sinner that God had cursed you and refused to bless you with a child. It, it, it was a, a, an indictment on your character. Your children were... Uh, a heritage of the Lord and bearing them was a special way to participate in the creation mandate to, to be fruitful and multiply. And to not participate in this was, was uniquely uh, going against the Hebrew way of life. It was a shameful thing. And so not having a child was a big deal in this world. It's like walking around with a, a big giant sign that said, I am a massive sinner. And I, I've got a secret sin in my life. I've got something going on with me. And I'm not useful to God's plans and what he is doing and bringing about his covenant promises and his fulfillment. It was a social humiliation. But... God is so kind to make this explicitly clear that that was not the case with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, now this whole story begins with Luke highlighting Zechariah and Elizabeth's credentials, their incredible credentials. Zechariah was a real life, legit priest. And his wife, Elizabeth, she wasn't just, just any woman from amongst Israel. She also was in the line of Aaron. She came from a line of priests. Not only that, but the text makes it really explicit. They were righteous. 
And Luke isn't here trying to use Paul's language and speak of imputed righteousness or justification, but he's saying that the couple's moral character was excellent. They obeyed God and they sought to fulfill the law in everything that they did such that they could be held up as moral exemplars. In the Bible, not many people are called righteous. It's an awfully short list. It's people like Noah and Job and precious few others, but Elizabeth and Zechariah, they fit into that mold. And so they keep going, bearing this shame, bearing this reproach, faithfully as those who are righteous as those who are blameless Zechariah faithfully carries out his duties as a priest and Elizabeth faithfully lives seeking to honor the Lord until Zechariah is chosen from among 18,000 priests by lot by God to be the one who goes into the temple and to make the sacrifices and offer the prayers to the Lord on behalf of the people And there God shows up. And what happens? What does God do about their problem? How does he meet this righteous couple? There in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears and he says that Zachariah's prayers have been heard and they are answered. They will receive their child. Verse 14 you will have joy and gladness and you will rejoice at his birth. God is dealing with their problem and as he does so, he's producing real joy, real gladness in their hearts. He produces joy in them as he reverses their fortunes and gives them what they have long waited for and desired. So much so that Elizabeth, when she hears this news and she reflects on it, she cries out and prays to God and says, you have taken away my reproach, O Lord. I have a football on the mind right now uh, because this past weekend was the NFL draft. I know that some of you, uh, that is the furthest thing from your interest, but... Uh, the NFL draft was this past week, and I like the NFL draft. It's where college players are drafted into the NFL and become professional players. And for me, it's must-watch TV. Uh, I, I would not miss it. And part of that is because I am a sports fan. Part of that is because I like to see where Alabama football players will be drafted because Alabama football is obviously the best. And uh, also, though, it's because there are amazing stories There are amazing things happening in the draft where people go from being amateurs and they've worked their entire life to become the elite of the elite and they have these longings. Then in an instance, they become professionals. Their financial futures are changed. Their vocations have changed. Their trajectory of life has changed. It's just a really interesting thing for me. But um, there's always storylines in the draft. My favorite storyline of this past draft that happened over the weekend uh, involved uh, an Alabama player, lo and behold. Uh, his name is Najee Harris. And I followed Najee Harris's story when he was in high school. He's actually from Northern California and he had a rough life. He spent a significant amount of his life living in a homeless shelter. He spent a significant amount of time living in the back seat of his mom's car. 
And yet, despite all the odds, he nevertheless became a, a star football player to the point where he was able to go to Alabama to play football. And, and it wasn't easy when he got to Alabama. He had to, to, to clear quite a few hurdles. He wasn't the best player anymore. He had all these seasoned, mature, experienced people in front of him. And, and, and he had to learn what it was like to endure through all these new sort of hardships that he hadn't dealt with before. He'd always been the best. And he, and he wanted to despair and he, and he thought about leaving so many different times. But eventually uh, things changed and, and he was able to rise to the ranks of being one of those people who could be drafted into the NFL. And so came Thursday night. Typically, when people are gonna be drafted, especially high in the draft, they have these big parties, lavish parties, where, where they're the center of attention and, and everything is about them and their accomplishments. Or they go to the draft itself, again, where there's this big spectacle and they're highlighted and their accomplishments are highlighted. It's just a big deal for these people to have this moment. Instead, Najee, he went to Northern California where he's from and he threw a party for the children at the homeless shelter where he grew up and he shared this experience with them. And then in the 24th pick of the draft, the Pittsburgh Steelers selected Najee Harris, changing his fortunes, reversing his fortunes. He went from being that kid who grew up in a homeless shelter in the backseat of a car to being a professional athlete with a $13 million contract guaranteed. In a moment, everything changed for him. When he heard his name, everything changed. When that announcement came across the loudspeaker, everything changed. Life-changing, uh, fortune-reversing news. And the joy on his face, the joy on his mother's face, it was, it was amazing to see. Smiles, tears, just being overwhelmed with gratitude and with joy. Life has changed for Najee. Now, this is a story, as beautiful as it is for me, it's a story that pales in comparison to what happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth. But it illustrates just the slightest glimpse of the fortune-reversing good news that this family has received. News that brought them tremendous joy. You know, this passage, it teaches us a lot of things. There's a lot of things we can glean from. It teaches us the value of corporate prayer, Again, when did the angel Gabriel show up? Well, when the people gathered in solemn corporate prayer. When prayers were being made as the people of God, that's when God showed up in a very special and powerful way. It teaches us the powerful truth that our unmet expectations over the longings of our hearts aren't necessarily tied to our sin or our shortcomings. It's an important lesson for us to glean from this passage. We can often seek to divine the will and the purposes of God and think that anything that is not good that is coming our way or good things that aren't coming our way are ultimately because of our sin or something we did 20 years ago or because we're just not believing enough. That's the prosperity gospel. And this passage is saying that's not true. God is always doing a thousand different things and we need to be very, very careful as we seek to divine his purposes and his plans. And so this passage warns us against that. It teaches us that the unborn possess real life humanity and therefore dignity, value, and worth. We see this in the fact that John would be filled with the spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. His personhood was, was not a question. 
No, he was a real life person even before he was born. But as important as those things are and as as much as we could talk about those for hours on end, what this passage wants to stress most explicitly to us is that everything is changing. Everything is changing. John is the first sign of that. He is the precursor of that. He's going to prepare a people for the Lord. And this is good news of great joy. God is at work. And this is good news for Zechariah and Elizabeth because it means that God cares about them and their plight even as he cares about his big redemptive plan and moving that forward. Grace, you need to know You need to know that God cares about you as an individual, as a people here in this parking lot or watching on live stream, even as he cares about his big redemptive purposes and plans. I think we have so many mature and godly people in our midst. And what we often do is, is, is we often minimize the personal, the things that we're up against, our particular plights, and, and we, we try to understand them in light of the big and redemptive plan. And Grace, I love that about you. That is the most beautiful thing. That is often, that balance, that, that leaning of the balance is often not the case in the Western church. And yet you are a people who often try to have a perspective that God is at work, God is moving, he's doing big things. But at the very same time, part of what this passage teaches us is that even as God is doing big things, he's caring about you at an individual level. He wants to meet with you. He wants to care for you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to draw near to you in your time of need. God is big enough to increase his gospel, build his church and advance his kingdom purposes all while dealing with your desire for a spouse. While while, while trying to kill sin and it continuing to overwhelm you. Your desire for a friend, your your desire to, to maintain hope in the midst of a difficult season like we've been going through with COVID. God cares about the big picture and he is doing things and he is powerful enough to maintain all that and advance that while caring for you. Please know that this morning. And know this, because God cares for you, that does not necessarily mean that he will grant you the thing that you're hoping for today. He may, he may not. Elizabeth and Zechariah receiving their child is not a promise to you that you will receive that thing that you're hoping for. But because of everything we're seeing in this passage, we can know that God is working and he is working for our ultimate joy. I think we see that in our final and concluding point. Last point, two observations and we'll close. We've received good news of great joy for all people. And that's received by faith. We've received good news of great joy for all people. And we receive that good news in faith. So first observation, I want us to think about that last line of this passage of scripture that we're studying today. Elizabeth responds to her pregnancy with these words. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Beautiful. 
God has acted on Elizabeth's behalf and he has vindicated her before the people. That is absolutely remarkable, so good. God's character is on display in this. But here we need to remember something that we've already said. God is working at the micro level in Elizabeth and Zechariah's story and he's working at the macro level. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they never needed to be vindicated. They never needed to be vindicated. They bore social reproach, but they didn't bear true reproach. They were blameless. But here, here they represent Israel. They're representatives. You can see that really plainly just in the fact that Zechariah is a priest who represents the people of God. But they represent Israel. And while they didn't bear a personal reproach, Israel, on the other hand, Deuteronomy 7 says that if Israel was faithful and obeyed God, then you shall be blessed among all people. There will be neither male nor female barren among you. Elizabeth's barrenness was not an indictment against her character. It was an indictment against the character of the people of God, Israel. That is why she was barren. Israel bore reproach. The people of God bore reproach. And so in the announcement of John, good news being announced to eventual parents, yes. Good news that will bring them joy, yes. But good news for the people of God, for this man will work to prepare the people of God for their savior, their bringer of true and eternal joy because that savior will take away their reproach. The joy that is spoken of in this passage, it's not just for a couple. It's for all people everywhere who will trust in Jesus's name, who will allow John's teachings to prepare their hearts and to prepare them for the Savior, for the Messiah to come and to redeem them to himself so that the Savior may take away our sin, take away our reproach and unite us in faith to a holy God to live with him and enjoy him forever. That's what the news, the announcement of John says to us. Our savior has come and we can have joy in his name because we will have life in his name and salvation in his name. This is good news of great joy for all people, including us. But the second observation, the really obvious application in this passage is seen in Zechariah and in his failings. This is surprising. This passage sets us up to see Zechariah just succeed in glorious, awesome ways in this passage, but he doesn't. And so this passage warns us against unbelief and it beckons us to receive this good news that brings great joy of all people. So how did Zechariah, the chosen and special, special priest who would represent the people of God, the one who was righteous and blameless, how did he respond to the angel Gabriel at this announcement? With faith, with hope, no, with doubt. Zechariah doubted. He did not express the faith and the trust that Mary would later express. No, he, he, he thought that's impossible. That can't happen. And so with a lack of faith, he doubted and questioned Gabriel, which was to question God, the one who knew the scriptures better than anyone, who would have known what this announcement means, 
He would have Malachi in his mind. He would know that John the Baptist was the long foretold prophet who was going to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. He should have known what that meant and instead he doubted and acted in unbelief. And he was disciplined for that. He was disciplined. Throughout his wife's pregnancy, he became mute and he became deaf. Now I don't think that means that this was a characteristic of Zechariah. I don't think his place amongst the people of God was taken away, but it does show us the consequences of unbelief. Sometimes we can treat unbelief as if it's not a real sin, but the Bible over and over and over again stresses to us that we are to believe in God, believe in his promises, believe in the Lord Jesus, and to not do that is sin. It is to be repented of. And so we have a strong warning here against seeing this news and hearing this news and treating it as something other than good news that produces joy. It's possible to do everything right from a religious perspective, from a religious duty perspective, and nevertheless lack faith. This passage calls us not merely go through the motions, not to just show up on Sunday morning, but to believe in the Lord Jesus. Many of us will be like Zechariah. And despite John coming in the spirit of Elijah, despite all the signs and wonders uh, performed by Jesus, people still rejected Jesus and act in unbelief. And we often reject Jesus and act in unbelief. And so this passage beckons us. Believe. Receive this good news. Initially for the salvation of your souls, If you're here today and you don't know Christ, then what Luke 1 is telling us is believe in Jesus today and know salvation from your sin, know life everlasting in Jesus' name. And for those of us who know Christ, it's beckoning us to believe and continue believing and persevere in that belief. Do you want the benefits of the gospel? Do you want the joy that comes with the good news that everything is changing? If you want that, then you believe in Jesus today. Grace, this week we will have thousands of little opportunities to take God's promises at face value. Thousands of opportunities to believe in God. To to take his word that was given to us so that we would know him and know his plans, know his expectations for us. We'll have opportunities to, to believe in those and act upon those, to trust in his goodness, to trust in his character, to, to continue hoping in God despite our circumstances, saying that life is hopeless, to repent of sin. We can go on and on and on. We'll have thousands of opportunities to believe in the Lord Jesus today. And so cling to Jesus and believe in his name. I'd like to pray for you that you'd be able to do that as we close. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus, and that he did come to take away our sins, to take away our sorrow, to unite us together with himself by faith so that we can have life everlasting in his name. Father, I pray that this announcement of of John, the forerunner, the one who would turn the people of God uh, to himself and prepare us for the Messiah. Lord, I pray that that, uh, that first good news would spark joy in us today as we realize that we are a part of your plans and your purposes. Father, I pray that you would fill us with hope and yes, faith as we receive this news and as we seek to go about our lives this week. Help us, God. We need you to increase our faith. 
And so we offer you ourselves, thanking you for being a good and mighty God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.